0: Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome everyone to episode number eight of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and I am joined today by our guest, Richard H., a protective security practitioner and thought leader. Richard is a protective security subject matter expert with more than 30 years of experience managing and providing high-risk protective security operations to the United Kingdom government, military, and private industry worldwide. Richard began his professional career as a soldier in the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense, where he served in both the Parachute Regiment and the Close Protection Unit of the Royal Military Police. During his service, Richard was attached to the Royal Military Unit responsible for providing close protection to princes and princesses, including Her Royal Highness Princess Margaret and His Royal Highness Prince Charles. He has personally provided close protection, protective surveillance, and covert protection to British ambassadors and UK special envoys for and on the behalf of the British government's Foreign and Commonwealth Office, senior military staff several members of the British and Saudi royal families, members of Parliament, A-list celebrities, influential world business leaders, and ultra-high net worth individuals. Richard received accommodation for outstanding service as a close protection team lead and personal protection officer to the former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, General Sir Rupert Smith. Richard has twice sat on the National Security Skills Advisory Panel for security training, providing advice and guidance in reviewing the United Kingdom's national occupational standards for close protection and is often sought by various media outlets such as Sky News, LBC Radio, CBS News, The Daily Mail, and the Associated Press regarding close protection, counterterrorism, security incidents, and protective operations provisions concerning the UK Prime Minister, the British royal family, including Meghan and Harry, and the Pope, the Queen's funeral, and accuracy concerning acting performance as to the provision of close protection and bodyguards for theater, film, and TV productions. Richard remains an untiring advocate for raising standards in close protection training and operational performance and adopts a zero-tolerance approach to those standards that should be imposed. He is a government lobbyist and campaigner and probably the global industry's most vocal critique and thought leader on all things concerning close protection. Now, Richard is the co-founder and director of operations at Mobius International, a highly regarded global firm with a well-established directory of clients who receive a broad range of services covering all aspects of protective security, surveillance, and intelligence services. His team at Mobius advises on all aspects of security, countering and mitigating risk to both specific and generic threats to ensure security throughout personal, residential, and travel-associated facets by exclusively using a level of provision embraced by their unique core value, a government standard for the private sector. Now, Richard is also the author of an international best-selling book, Close Protection, A Closer Observation of the Protection Equation. He has been diligently writing an updated and revised edition by the same title, which I'm excited to announce will be released to the public in late October or early November. This updated edition dives into the restrictions and limitations imposed on operational performance from private sector close protection training and companies to laws and budgets and the government's prying eyes. This book unearths the problems, difficulties, and complications of the commercial industry while providing some vital solutions to maximize close protection operations to an effective, workable, and professional state. With all that said, Richard, it is our pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today to talk about a very wide-ranging group of topics here uh, with your extensive background.
1: Many thanks for inviting me, Ron. It's a pleasure to be on board. Wonderful.
0: So, I I usually like to start our conversation out with kind of the beginning, your origin story. How did you get into the world of protection? And, like so many of our other guests, that avenue seemed to be through military service. And, my first question I want to ask you is what inspired you to serve your country? And, kind of, how did you get into that window of protection through the military
1: service? Um, It was a a natural progression for me um, as a, a young, naive 19 year old. I joined the forces, as, as many other reasons uh, others do, um, is not to serve Queen and country, even though that's the, um, the nice, glossy uh, appearance of the, of the matter. The, real, the realistic approach was the fact that uh, I joined the forces as, as the, the reason for many others do, and that is for, for travel excitement um, and uh, having a, a general a good laugh. Um, I was a very wayward young lad Um, and I dread to think, what the end result would have been for me if I hadn't joined forces. So the forces gave me a good kick up my backside. It corrected me and set me on the right route um, where I developed and progressed throughout the security industry. So close protection was a a development during my service. Um, I wasn't aware of CP um, prior to joining the forces. Um, The main thrust and reasoning for joining forces was to Uh, prove to myself I could meet the challenge of going through the process of the parachute regiment training, passing the the arduous physical element, um, and serving up in battalion life. Now, during that process, the very initial process, I was a very unfit lad in those days. Um, I didn't do any training prior to joining the army. Um, And in those days, in 1989, um, there was uh, the internet, No, no, no information whatsoever available. Um, All we had was on the uh, the combat and survival magazine to read through. Um, And so there I was, I stumbled into army and it was a baptism of fire, really. Um, I grew up in quite a sheltered life. um, And there I was thrust in the middle of rough and tumble, spit and sawdust um, and uh, the harsh aggression of um, military training. So I actually failed the initial physical element for the parachute regiment and absolutely disheartened. I then transferred over to the military police, um, which was, in comparison, a quite a slipper city in terms of training, how you were looked after. Uh, and after training, I was deployed to Northern Ireland, where I conducted a typical soldier's role. But what shocked me during that experience was I was surrounded by individuals that, to me, shouldn't have actually been in the army, let alone conducted a soldier's role in such a high-risk environment. Um, that may appear to sound a little harsh. Um, But there's a difference in character and mental fortitude in terms of the characters in the military police, typically, and the characters in the parachute regiment, which is ultimately a frontline spearhead fighting unit. Um, It's one of the elite units, uh, the Royal Marines being the other conventional force. So when you make a comparison between the military police and the parachute regiment, it was quite a harsh... um, Quite a harsh difference. However, during my service in Northern Ireland, I saw a Lynx helicopter coming into land and saw a guy jumping out um, with unconventional weapon, um, no headdress or anything. And I went to have a chat with him, and uh, he, he told me, "Oh yeah, I will do close protection." So in those early days, that was at the back of my mind. But I wanted to still meet my challenge of proving to myself I could do it. So I then transferred back to the parachute regiment and um, knuckled down and passed it, went up battalion. Um, And in those days, all it was was a rotation of Northern Ireland, UK, Northern Ireland, UK, with the odd exercise thrown in the middle. And I wanted something more than this. Um, A lot of the guys were leaving. Even the commanding officer had left. And uh, it was a time where battalion life for me wasn't really what I wanted. I'd met my future wife and it was, uh, I needed to stop going out drinking, fighting and all the rest of it. It was time to knock her down and be serious with the career. So I looked back and remembered the discussion I had with the guy jumping out the heli. And I thought, do you know what? It's pointless leaving the forces. Let's transfer back to the military police and to do the course. Now, normally within the military police, when you do close protection course, um, you first go on the course. And then if you're lucky, you go on a tour. Now, when you go on a six-month tour protecting a British ambassador or um, within a green um, uniform environment, looking after a general, for instance, after which you then go back to a typical policing unit for a couple of years before, if you're lucky again, to be selected for another tour. Now, in consideration to the fact that I transferred solely to do CP in the military police, I did actually land on my feet. So not only after training... Did I didn't really do any police work. I got transferred back to the same base where the Parachute Regiment were, and I still conducted the power role. So in the military police, you have what's called power product. So it's the Airborne Military Police that in that time was attached to 5 Airborne Brigade. Um, it's now called 16 Air Assault. Um, so in 5 Airborne Brigade, I was then in the military police. I ended up doing more parachute jumps in the military police than I did in the Parachute Regiment. So, um After a year where you have to do your obligatory promotional course, I was then in line to uh, be able to apply for the CP course. I went on the CP course and then went straight on a tour immediately on the back of that course. So I went out and looking after um, the UK special envoy to um, the EU in Bosnia um, for a six month tour. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I then put in a preference posting with the chief clerk to Cyprus because knowing that um, I didn't, wasn't really keen on doing police work, and Cyprus being a bit of a cushy number, I put in a posting there. So after the tour, I then tipped up in front of the chief clerk and just to confirm my posting. And he says, uh, nope, H, you're off to Northern Ireland. I went, oh, no. He goes, nope, don't worry, it's a CP role. Oh, fantastic. So I went over to Northern Ireland to do the CP role and loved it as well. It was a, um, a great unit, um, a great job. And I fortunately landed on my feet again and looked after the the main general over there who commanded British forces in Northern Ireland. So I extended out there and looked after two generals. Um, and then it was time to really consider about leaving the forces as a whole. Uh, but before I did so, I then landed on my feet again and then got posted out to Algiers, where I looked after the British ambassador out there. Um, and then I cut away and left the army. So. Um, it was really my 12-year point. And in the British Army, um, it's typically typical services for around 22 years. Is what's called your colour service. Uh, 12 years is your sort of half pension point. And it's really the crossroads where you decide to go, right, now it's time to go up the promotional ladder or you then leave. And to me, I didn't join the Army to go up the ladder. I joined to get as much out of it as possible and then leave. Um, So, yes, I landed on my feet. It was a fantastic experience. Um, But the funny thing is, now I'm old and wrinkly, I look back in those days and even though the military police are very proud of their high standards in all things, and especially close protection, and to be perfectly frank, um, they are up there amongst the best in the world at what they do. Now I'm older and wiser. You look back over what occurred on those operations, and it wasn't 100% perfection at all. And most of that could be put down to budgets, uh, in terms of the budgets allotted by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, in terms of the uh, systems uh, and manpower for the the ambassador's residence, for example, or or the standard of vehicles, uh, and and so on. Uh, but also um, being very critical, you could also criticise the the approach and delivery of training as well. Now, in the British Army, you have what's called all arms. And uh, all arms means that a particular course is open to every unit, whether you're Army, Navy, Air Force. And the reason for this is because the standards are extremely high. And in order to get the throughput of that manpower, you need to open the door to all. So Entrance standards onto the course are higher, and the standards on the course in terms of the testing and assessment are higher, and the operational effectiveness on the ground is as a result is much higher. So, if you make a comparison between a specialist role in the military police as close protection and that of United Kingdom Special Forces, for instance, the, the standard obviously is hugely different, mainly because of the approach to the selection and training of its manpower. And me being very critical. About such a thing is the RMPCP course should be open to all. They should increase the standards. Um, And a a perfect example and reasoning for this approach is such that in the nineties operational commitments were so vast that the military police close protection couldn't fulfil all of them. And as a result, in a knock-on effect, and no doubt in their in fairness in their defence, is probably a uh, logistical and also a budgetary reasoning as well by the UK government, what we saw several years later in Iraq and Afghanistan is British embassies security not being provided by military police close protection, but being provided by commercial entities. So the likes of the, the security company, Bear Moths, the huge global security companies that have these links with government and have these huge contracts. And when you look at the standards on, on display between the typical commercial close protection operative looking after an ambassador in Afghanistan, for example, and you compare that to a military police close protection operative, there is no comparison whatsoever. And yet the UK government is quite happy in subjecting a British ambassador to the standards of a commercial world and not that of the higher standards of the military training. And what we have here is a a bit of a roll of the dice. It's an acceptance of a certain element of risk that is actually dangerous and of course, like, likewise in so many industries, things will only change when something's gone wrong. Something goes wrong, and then there's a process of alarm, finger pointing, assessment, review, and then change. Well, why not be proactive? Why not deliver the highest standards possible before something like this happens? Because why, why roll the dice on someone's life in such a high-risk environment? Now, if you were to make a comparison of that individual, of that security company, who isn't former government close protection? And all they've done is attend a two week uh, CP course from the UK regulator. Um, so, just to have a quick brief overview of that for for your listeners, the United Kingdom government for close protection in the private security industry sector is regulated by a, a government body or a body that works on behalf of government called a Security Industry Authority. And the standards that they've imposed are extremely low. So, there are no industry entrance benchmarks in terms of. Age, minimum medical fitness, medical testing, you don't even need a driver license. The, the door is open to all and sundry to actually be loaded onto this two week course that is provided by many commercial training providers. So the bottom line is after a government licensing scheme, you can have a recent school leaver who is half blind, half deaf, gets out of breath walking up a flight of stairs, doesn't have a driver license, who can attend a two week course having walked through a job centre, a free course. That the government supply at the end of which is provided a uk recognized uk government recognized license to protect another person on the streets of the United Kingdom now this individual can then be employed by a commercial contractor who has uh, contracts in Afghanistan for example and they look at the SIA license course as a means to tick the box of the human resources aspect so as a basis for this for this license you need to prove that you are who you say you are, identity checks. You have a DBS check, which is a, a basic criminal background check. And of course, these boxes are ticked, which can be time-consuming and expensive for any employer. So these, these commercial contractors in Afghanistan, these companies, they, they insist on an SIA licence for a UK personal, for example, um, as a means to open the door to them, as a means to have a certain standard. And no doubt when they're tendering for these contracts, they make much exclamation over the fact that All of our personnel are licensed by a UK government authority in terms of close protection. Now that sounds fantastic, but in reality, it's absolutely terrible because when you look at the training and the industry entrance benchmarks, you cannot make a comparison between that and the government sector. So, typically, a a typical um, RNPCP course is seven or eight weeks long. I mean, I mean, I did mine many years ago. Now, when I did it, it was seven weeks long. Before you go uh, on a deployment tour. Um, you do another couple of weeks of pre-deployment training, which is mission-specific training according to that operational environment you're going to. And it's a team bonding effort as well. Um, It's a journey thing. You get to know everyone. You get to do all your tactics, drills, procedures, and everything as a team. Uh, At the end of that two weeks, you are a solid team. Um, And any funny characters can sort of be filtered out with any luck. So you then get deployed on that. So at the end of which, when you're getting deployed, you have, in effect, conducted 10 weeks training. And this is in in addition to your basic military training, You end additional training, such as police advanced driving and and so on. So there is no comparison to the commercial sector, you see. And this is my whole argument and thrust. This is my um, uh, absolute frustration with the government regulator, Um, because if you were to ask everyone in the industry, is close protection a serious profession, a serious business? There'll be a resounding yes, it is. Well, if it's so professional, if it's such a serious business, why isn't there more of a concerted effort to deliver the standards in training so that the operational environment has the right standard for the end user? Because all it is, is as a complete result of the infrequency and lack of any uh, hostile act, they get away with it, you see. They get away with these low standards. It's a constant roll of the dice. And when you look at the commercial sector, specifically in the United Kingdom, where it's a low to no risk, generically. its uh, Close protection is afforded as more of a basis as a life smoother, as opposed to a high-level corporate individual who has a very high risk against him from a number of angles. And because the delivery of it is mainly as a a life smoother, the standard on the ground is poor. They get away with it. They think they're doing an excellent job in terms of risk mitigation and provision the close protection to that individual. Um, And the client, the end user, thinks they're They're receiving an excellent service in every sense of the word. The bottom line is, no, you're not. (laughs) And uh, it's it's absolutely terrible. The whole situation is a complete shambles. It's a debacle. Um, But is it better now than what it was 30 years ago? Yes, without a doubt it is, because there's more discussions. There's more talk. We are setting talking about standards in close protection. And I've done several of these interviews with uh, with various other podcasts and, and so on. And the word is getting out there. And it's great to to listen to other people's discussions about it and their approaches on, on close protection. Because the more we talk about it, the more we read about it, the more that people will think, do you know what? Standards could be increased. Why don't we deliver a better standard? And the unfortunate thing is. In the UK, as I mentioned, the industry is regulated by a government regulator. Now. I am fully supportive of, of this. The industry does need regulating. Um, and if I was to have, uh, if someone's in, in up above power was to say, Richard, the worldwide industry is your responsibility. You deal with it as you see fit, weapons free, anything goes. I would say, right, let's have a worldwide standard. And this is what it is. Every country has to abide by this standard. And it's instantly recognized as being leading. And it's so good. That even government law enforcement agencies can look to the private sector as a means to support their operations as well. Because, like we see with, uh, for instance, a Meghan the Harry coming to the UK, there's this constant talk about the delivery and, and, and both of both the couple. I mean, the couple not being happy with their police. Like, okay, there's other elements. There's other elements such as um, firearms law, access to diverse intelligence flows from agencies and so on, which is vitally. A vitally, uh, component of, um, of of CP as a whole. But the thing is, the ultimate reasoning for this is the fact that the standard on the ground between the commercial and the government sector is a void. There's a huge vacuum there, and of course, the commercial client is not receiving the same standard as a government one when you actually disregard firearms and access to intelligence flows and all that stuff. So, this is this is where I am. This is the reason for the book. Um, and yes, as you, as you highlight, it's uh, the first time I, I launched that book was 10 years ago now, How Time Flies.
0: <laughs> sure does.
1: And now it's time to revise it and update it.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, it's very interesting listening to the UK perspective, correct? And, and the licensing over there, and certainly in the United States, uh, the licensing is even more fractured, right? It's, it's statewide licensing, and there are operators who carry multiple licenses for different states with very different requirements for those states. Uh, Some states have a high standard. Some states have a very low standard. And and protection in the United States is everything from the unarmed to very highly skilled operators that have an extensive, usually military or police background, and then transition into the private sector. That's not always the case, but it's usually the norm. And uh, you're right. In, in the United States, we have this same issue of keeping to a higher standard. And it always is a back and forth between who has that higher standard. Is it entities within the private sector who are competing with other entities and therefore are having to to develop a higher level of standard, and is it the government side, which is always constrained to budget allocation, different types of monetary constraints, personnel constraints, and then the wayward policies. So it's an interesting back and forth here, and, and it seems like what you guys have is a single umbrella, whereas we have multiple different umbrellas of different sizes throughout the United States. And when you're operating you know, past state lines, when you're flying through different parts of the country, you have to be mindful of these different state laws um, that are in effect for these individuals. And I agree with you. The easiest thing would be to have an umbrella over the entire world where we could say this is the set standard. This is where we're going to be. And this is what everybody needs to come to. Um, And how much of a reality we're going to get to that point within either of our lifetimes has yet to be seen.
1: It will never happen.
0: No, and no one's going to agree, especially when you go varying different country to country, and they're all going to have their different say, and then there's politics are going to get involved. But much like you said, if, if we were king for a day, I think we'd have a uniform standard. Mm. Um, but that's not to say that the private sector can't elevate that standard. And I think that's something you've advocated for and, and your company advocates for mm. is setting that standard beyond what you've received even in the military and pushing forward to give the client the best protection they can have. And again, everything's driven by a bottom line in the private sector, which is different than the government protection. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear that kind of duality um, what it's like over in the UK as well what the the private sector motives are in difference from you know government protection. Um, I, I'd be very interested in hearing that from you but I want to peel back a little bit to again, that beginning for you, um, specific to your journey. Were there any mentors along your way that really set you on the path of protection or instilled that fire? Like you said, you didn't even know about this till you saw that individual jump out with some unique firearms equipment and uh, different headdress. Everything was totally different from what you had seen. So I'd love to hear that from you. If there was somebody who guided that path for our audience that is listening today, who Maybe transitioning out of military into the private sector and deciding, is this something I want to transition to, either continue or develop? And then for those individuals who are deciding this is going to be a new adventure for me, how do I best get to that standard? What kind of mentors do I need to look for?
1: It's a a very difficult question in in terms of mentorship, because um, the military police environment, unlike many other units in the British Army, is very individualistic. Um, So... Unlike a parachute regiment, for example, where you are a, a, a single unit of men, you are a battalion, and wherever the battalion goes, you go because you're part of that battalion. In the military police, you're an individual and you get posted individually, so you can be have two years in the south of uh, the United Kingdom and go to Germany for two years on your own sort of thing. You're joining units, you have to get to know everyone and so on. So when I look back, there wasn't really anyone as a mentor. As such, um, it was more of the the attendance of the course. Um, it's very difficult for me to put a finger on why close protection appealed to me. Uh, maybe when I scrutinize the reasoning, maybe it's possibly because I like the idea of the team effort in protecting someone, and when you actually look at the term protecting someone, I find it difficult to actually think of any other occupation or job function where the seriousness of you not doing your job properly could have such adverse end result, um, that the importance of that delivery is then highlighted to such an extent where everything around that delivery is vital. And that is what really appealed to me. You're, you're, um, it's a chessboard. Um, you are you're being deployed and uh, you are there to protect someone. And the difficulty in that delivery of protection is such that um, if you are in a high risk environment with an overcarriage of weapon and you don't really have much access to intelligence, you don't know where the enemy is, you don't know what they look like. They're looking just like a typical uh, civilian of that country who then could attack you at any minute. You're, your hairs on the back of your neck are upright. You are maximum on the edge alertness. And when you're walking from a building to a car and car to a building, your head is on a 360 swivel. And it's uh it's something that you can't explain um at that moment in time to a civilian who's only done a two-week course. It's an incredible thing and it's almost a concert when you're watching it. It is a fantastic thing to watch a well performing protection team doing their job. Um, because it's fluid dynamite, really. When you see them working on the on the ground, um, and I've been all over the world, I've watched many presidential teams uh, cutting around doing their thing, and uh, um, it's, it's just a, a great thing to witness. But coming back to your question, I would because everything was individualistic in the, in the, in the deployment postings and all, There wasn't really any mentor to me, really. No one, no one sits down with you and say, "Rich." I think you should do this. Well, how about this and so on? Yes, there were the management structure at the time. Some were better than others. Um, some were great in their job. Some were totally incompatible, um, and some were just absolutely diabolical. Um, but for the most part, um, the end result is: um, is this? You've got to answer the question: Was the standard delivered sufficient to mitigate threats on the ground? And it's very difficult to answer that question because you never know whether hostile surveillance was conducted on you, whether they decided to go for a softer option, whether or not the actual reputation and uh, footprint on the ground when you are deployed is in itself um, a, uh, um, what's the word? A deterrent for them. Yes, a deterrent. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, of course, when you're actually doing your, your role over there, it's a very difficult thing when you're actually part of that team, knowing whether, whether there is an enemy out there or not. Because, let's face it, for the most part on CP operations, no ma- and in training, what everyone's taught, is a reactive stance. Very little aspect is given and attention is paid to being proactive. And to be proactive when um, the conducting of close protection you really need a separate team, a CP team in itself, protecting someone in, uh, as being a last line of defense as such in the commercial aspects. And then in the commercially, you're really the first and last line.
0: And sometimes you're the only line, those solo protectors that are out there as well.
1: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And you're on the back foot straight away. You need that extra team, this protective surveillance team. Who are actually identifying hostile action? They're actually positioning themselves in locations on the street where they where hostile activity would have been conducted. They're dominating the area that you can't as a CP team, and and uh, their backup. So and and uh, it needs to be flexible. And the protective surveillance team needs to also act as a counter attack team if something goes in. But it's budgets again. And it's um, commercially, it's even more stringent to operational effectiveness as it is in the government. Um, when you have such a high profile event, let's just take the Queen's Funeral, for instance, being so recent. The number of non-CP personnel involved in that protective effort, huge, absolutely huge. You're talking special forces, British intelligence, um, covert operators in the crowd, as well as all the standard uniformed aspects. And and the technological, as well as the intelligence flows already existing from MI5, they've already got their targeted individuals, and they're listening to the chatter on the net, and they're reacting to this. Um, everything is proactive, you see. And we don't know, as civilians, how many serious incidents were thwarted on the days leading up, um, and the day itself. Um, and we probably won't never know for decades
0: to come. You know, it's interesting you bring up that event, um, because looking at it from across the pond, so to speak, um, it, it just, it was a massive event. I don't think we've, we've seen one with that much personnel, that much of a footprint, um, ever. And, and I I can't recall a time in the United States where we've seen something like that. Um, and last, you know, last summer we had the presidential detail and, and when I was wearing my government hat, you know, we were supporting that and it's always fascinating to me um still being in government service but also operating a private business um the the difference that you have when there is that government hat and uh, just like you said the 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 bubble that just you have with this protection uh, you, you have you know the advanced teams you have the surveillance it's so expansive and, and many private industries, again, they're driven by their clients, and there are very few clients willing to pay for something that is govern- government-esque, right? that has that broad umbrella. Um, and it is surprising to me how many high net worth individuals operate with solo practitioners without an advanced team yeah. or without the intelligence component to that. And whenever I'm over at a training provider and those discussions come up, yeah. it is always tied to client um, understanding. Yeah, And maybe sometimes, you know, a bit of ignorance uh, about their own threats that they have towards them. Um, and I think that intelligent components, the threat assessments that go along with that, um, if you're not explaining that to your client and making them aware of the why, the, the importance of this protective bubble, they're going to opt for that solo protector that they physically and tangibly can see. They're not going to understand the covert side or the surveillance side or the advance that, that gets there prior to their arrival, the importance of that. Um, And it's one thing when I talk to guys who operate in the government side, your clients, so to speak, don't get as much ability to waive coverage to make those strategic decisions. They're explained this is how it's going to be because of your position, whereas it's client driven in the private sector market. Um, and I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, who's operated in both and now is operating far more either in support of government operations or to private sector clients. How your company navigates that conversation when you take in a new client, how you make them aware of understanding, hey, this is the standard we operate at, and we would rather either lose a client than operate at a lesser standard and open you up to a lot more risk <laughs> than you may be even aware to. So I'd be, I would love <laughs> to hear how you navigate that, um, what kind of roadblocks you've run into, and what kind of potential solutions you've, you've come across.
1: Well, Ron, it's, it's very interesting you should raise this very subject because it's something I've included in the additional book. Oh, wonderful. Uh, there's a, um, uh, uh, I've, I've made a comparison between government and private sector. and Basically, it's a flow chart. Hmm. Um, so if you were to take a government sector, for example, or let's take a military general. Um, the decision of him to be afforded close protection isn't his decision. The decision is made by UK government PLC. And uh, there, are, there are people um, in, uh, in specific job function roles, and it's their job to assess risk. Um, and that risk is predominantly based on um, the nature uh, and job responsibilities of that principle concerned. Um, so close protection will be afforded by virtue of that role as a default setting. Um, regardless of any incoming intelligence um, of hostile acts against him or against that position, that default setting is that position receives close protection. That's it. Now, if you were to have a military general and you're cutting around doing your, your provision of CP and he says to you, oh, it's okay, I, I don't need CP here. Uh, for example, Northern Ireland um, cross-country one. General was involved in doing a cross-country run. And obviously it was put to him, we're going to be running with you, sir. Uh, no, you're not. Uh, yes, we are, sir. No, you're not. So it was a bit of a, a thing here. And the solution was delivering that close protection without him knowing about it. And we had the, the DS solution, uh, sorry, directing staff solution for that run. Uh basically it was a um it wasn't just a run, it was a uh, orienteering thing. Um where you get this point to point, uh collecting things as quickly as possible on foot. And uh of course we had we had the map, the DS solution, and we said, Sir, we have we have the DS solution for you. He goes, <laughs> And he had a chuckle. No, it's okay, thank you. But we knew the route, we knew the locations and so on. And uh we delivered it without without him knowing about it, but we were close to him as well. So the workaround solution for that in keeping everyone happy and also ticking the box for the main employer, as in the UK government uh, directive, um, was that we delivered the service and, and kept the principal happy. Now if you were to do this in a commercial world, um, you could risk losing your job. And um, several times um, where I was head of security for a very prominent figure, uh, I was a former Forbes 10, uh, I was head of security for him for 19 years. And there were several occasions where um, due due to cultural aspects and also the situation sensitivity aspects at the time um, and the nature of activity, we needed to ensure that protection was provided in the most discreet manner possible. And so what what the situation was, when the job started 19 years ago as it was typical CP, it then became a level of increasing distance and more covert nature. And I had covert operatives on the ground. No one would know who they are. Um, they'd, give, they'd play advanced. They'd be as backup. and They'd even provide a CP. So it was a combination and fluctuation between roles in, in so far as, um, right, one minute they're protective surveillance, next minute they're covert surveillance, next minute they are uh, an SAP, next minute they're a counter attacking sort of thing. So to have these extra guys as a, as a TL, to have those extra guys on the ground and to use in the manner you see fit um, was, was great. And a perfect example of this, we did a pickup from a heliport in London and I had two cars exactly the same. The only difference was a number plate, And the boss wasn't aware I had two cars exactly the same. And of course, we did a pickup from the heli and the, the counter team that I had was in front of his vehicle. We were in the vehicle behind him. So he naturally thought, I and IMI guys were in front of him, and we were on route back to his house. And, of course, he decided to go shopping on route. And he saw that lead car carry on the journey back to the house, you see. Of course, we're in the back. We're in the backup car, exactly the same as the lead car. And he didn't know we were there. He arrives at the shop, goes onto the ground floor, does a bit of shopping, looks up and he sees me. And you could tell what was ticking on in his mind when he was looking at me. He was literally was looking at me for quite a while thinking, how the heck did you get here when you're in that other car? So it's providing security in, in such a way that um, they become accustomed to it. Um, they, they want to know that security is provided, but they don't want to see you. This, don't forget this is high level corporate. This is, um, this is mingling with politicians, serious business leaders worldwide. And um, the, the level of uh, attention to detail, in terms of manner of communication, presentation, deportment, um, non-verbal communication, just the manner how you are as a person. You've got to blend into that environment, not as a security person. You've got to blend into that environment as a a willing, helpful assistant. And a lot of uh, individuals working in this industry simply do not understand the importance of how to uh, understand the uh, dynamics in the flow of certain operations. The typical stance of, uh, dare I say, the Hollywood presence of a, a bodyguard next to someone on their shoulder, that's what they focus on. That's the Gucciness. That's the the big I am, that's how we do things. This is how we roll, punk. And that's the sort of thing. But it's, it's, this is close protection, and it's a finite difference between a typical Hollywood bodyguard and someone who delivers Protective security in a very high level corporate environment where you could lose your job just like that because of the way you looked.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's always fascinating me at the horror stories, right? So you'll get a new company um, and the first thing you'll hear is we've fired six companies before you within the last year, right? And it's cycling through, cycling through, cycling through. And uh, a lot of that is because of what you said, that lack of attention to detail, the lack of ability to fit into their environment, and not so much of the Hollywood scene of what you see on TV, of what you think protection is, Um, and uh, the Instagram persona of what you see protection is. Very open, very overt. Um, Aside from Secret Service protection and the corporate side, you are not seeing that level of overt protection anymore. It is much more covert, it is much more intelligence-based and surveillance-based protection. Um, And and I would love to dig into that more. But first, I want to take a brief pause to listen to a message from our sponsor for this episode, and and I'll bring it back and we'll dive into a little bit more on the reality versus the the Hollywood-esque and TV production of what protection is thought to be. So Richard, just uh, hang tight there for a second. And for those listening, we'll be back with more with Richard H. in just a moment. Today's episode sponsor is North American Rescue. A medical and trauma care product company, North American Rescue is dedicated to decreasing preventable death by providing the most effective and highest quality mission-critical medical products to our military, federal agencies, civilian law enforcement, private sector security, EMS, and pre-hospital lifesavers. The company designs, develops, and tests these products based on the military's Tactical Combat Casualty Care TCCC Guidelines rescue human factors engineering, evidence-based medicine, and an in-depth understanding of the requirements from you, their valued customers. Ensuring that they remain at the forefront of casualty care as a premier provider of life-saving products and supplies, North American Rescue has assembled a seasoned staff of former special operations medics, experienced law enforcement officers and SWAT operators, EMS healthcare providers, credentialed product development, and quality professionals former senior military medical officers, and expert consultants. Go check out North American Rescue's website to purchase their cat tourniquet and other medical and trauma care products to ensure your team has the best products and customer service care available in the security industry. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Global Security Protection Group podcast. Again, today we are with Richard H., and uh, we are discussing all things close protection, We're discussing standards and training and elevating this in the private sector to match and even surpass what's taught in the military side. Um, And giving the clients the very best protection they can either afford or the standard that you're willing to perform at. And uh, always higher is better. Limiting and mitigating those threats are key. So we're very uh, fortunate to have Richard with us today to dive into some of that. And we're going to continue on what we were talking about just a moment ago about the reality of protection versus the veneer of protection that you see in the Hollywood movies. Uh, Very overt, very uh for the Americans listening, very Secret Service style protection where you are very noticeable, very open, very in the face of those around you. And you own not just the street, but in many aspects, parts and swaths of the city uh, when you're moving through and everybody knows you are there. Um, but in the corporate side and the, the side that both of us play in in our in our day to day. You don't have that affordability and that presence. And most times your client doesn't want that added elevation. Um, they want that semblance of normal and to cling on to those, those little bits that they still have at the level that they operate. And uh, additionally, as, as I'm sure you can attest, Richard, you have clients that are very A-type and they want to be driving that narrative, driving that protection, and they want the ability to waive coverage. And uh, it's very difficult to do that in an overt sense and still have that. And I'd love for you to to parcel that out. The Hollywood esque versus the reality that you operate in, specifically in the UK and the other countries that your teams are currently operating in.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, probably one of the most difficult situations a uh, a close protection team leader can find themselves is when you are delivering protection to a high level corporate. Um, and we're talking to the, the top of the world, literally, in terms of um, personal wealth and uh, activity and so on. One of the most difficult things to deal with is when the boss turns around to you as he walks into a building and says to you, be invisible. Now, how do you deliver protection when you're invisible? Because his interpretation of it, in, invisible is he doesn't want to see you. So you've got to blend in to the environment in which the principal is, with not only those around you not understanding the reasons for your presence, but you got to be present without the boss actually seeing you as well. Um, And that's very difficult because if he doesn't see you, then quite likely, most of the time, you can't see him. And if you can't see him, you can't see anyone approaching him, you can't see uh, if he's moved location or either. And a number of times where you've got to be invisible, say in a, a department store, um, where he's sort of crouched down to get something from a, uh, a shelf that's lower down. You are, you are 15 feet away, for example, you, he's out of sight, and you turn your head to watch the crowd, and you look back and you think he's still crouching down. But as you've turned your head, he's actually moved off, and he's behind a pillar, and he's walked through another room. And it's these aspects that can actually put your, your actual job occupation risk because if the boss is in another room he's going to look around and now even though he said to you "I don't want to see you he's now looking for you because he wants to give a message to the PA and so that's that's your job gone just like that and it's uh in a high level corporate world it could be reasons of um he's having a meeting with a politician that he doesn't want to get out there out there in the media and he's turning around to you say be invisible because he doesn't maybe want to portray the image that he has security to with the politician he's actually uh, meeting with. He doesn't want it to be out in the media um, at all. And there's an element of trust there as well. Um, and there's also an element at times of foolhardiness of the principles in terms of um, one minute they want you there as security, because they have a real um, tangible uh, threat against them. And the next minute, they think they're in control. Of mitigating that risk. And uh, they think, no, actually, this moment of time is more important. Um, so you, you cut away now, I don't want to see you, but still provide security where you can. And of course, when he's, there's an element of duty of care, there's an element of um, protecting your job, there's an element of actual nothing other than pure professionalism at wanting to deliver the best standard that you can. In the, in the current situation, um, but when the actual person who's being protected turns around to you and says, "Be invisible," it's very difficult to continue providing that protection. You see, because even you may be invisible to many other people in that immediate vicinity. But if the boss sees you, you're not doing what he's asked you to do. Absolutely right. <laughs> and so, and so, it's, it's an extremely difficult situation because if something does happen to you, you can guarantee you will turn around and say, oh, "Where were you?" I thought, I'm, you're, "I employ you to do protection." But but, say you told me to be invisible. Yes, but I still want you to provide security for me. You're fired. And it's it's such a uh, a sensitive aspect that um, those working within the government arena simply don't have to be concerned with whatsoever because their boss isn't the boss. Their boss is the TL or it's the detail, it's the detail, it's the whole rank structure as you go up to uh, um, security advisory and all the rest of it.
0: Interestingly enough, right? you have the ability, again, for these clients to wave cover. And so when they turn around and they say, be invisible, they may not exactly mean be invisible, right? It's be invisible to everybody else around, sometimes including me, but still provide me that close protection service. And so what kind of individual or what kind of makeup or what does someone need to develop in order to achieve this ability to both provide protection, but also do it in a manner that is So low profile or so covert that people don't either look to them or see them as security. And again, like you said, you need to put yourself somewhat in the mindset of, I'm now a personal assistant who has a security role instead of I'm the security provider that's going to have this Hollywood-esque, I'm going to walk in, beat my chest, everyone's going to know who I am. Because at the end of the day, we're a support role, right? Nobody cares about us. It's all about the client that we're protecting, mm. and uh, we are that supportive individual. We're not, you know, the main actor
1: in the in in the scene, so to speak. Mm. There's there's two main fundamentals here. One, the first fundamental is um, the the knowledge of uh, the boss. So it's, it's time served on that job, uh, and only through that time served will you gain an understanding of the boss's wishes and preferences. Uh, you have to tune yourself in, um, in terms of accurately gauging the distance you should be, um, the appreciation and understanding of sensitivity to specific meetings, um, while still providing that same level of security. The other fundamental aspect is one of how you actually look. So a lot of guys are actually in this role because of their size. Don't get me wrong. I mean. These guys are extremely um, proficient uh, and effective in doing their role, such as minders, looking after celebrities, pushing through crowds, seeing over the top of crowds, being that big physical presence. But in my mind, this isn't close protection. This, it, you're minding. Uh, you're there. You're there as a physical back off or punch you stance. Um, for me, close protection is more. Uh, finite in terms of um, drilling down, exactly understanding and delivering what is required for that specific operation, and this can actually come around to the uh, quite severely to the um, selection of the the right personnel for the job. Um, so, in terms of blending in, of course, you need to look like Mister Grayman. Um, when you're wearing a suit, you need to look like a businessman, not like. Um, uh, and muscles on top of muscles uh when that, that the shirt buttons are about to pop when you fold your arms that sort of thing you just got to blend in and it's it's your presentation um how you are at that moment the manner in which you talk to people um and uh the way you sit in a chair even um the way you the way you uh handle yourself and move around the hotel or, or or the business meeting function area or, or what have you you're there to blend in to do a role and um and part of that as well is not only just to blend in um, in order to identify hostile activity better but you're also there to enhance the image of the principal as well these high-level corporates they don't want to give the impression that they they, they employ a load of thugs. Um, or they're part of the mafia, or they're part of gangland, and they want These are my, this is my crew, uh, and uh, you take the, you you sign this contract, otherwise my crew will do you sort of thing. It's not, it's just not that. It's just you have to be. If you're working in the corporate high level corporate world, you yourself have got to be high level corporate in appearance and uh, in conduct. And it's it's so vitally important. And if, if we are to switch this this dynamic uh, as a comparison to government nature when you look at the, uh, those protection officers delivering protection to members of the UK royal family, they um, have to ensure that their level of communication with their principal, their the, the manner in which they do everything, their sensitivity to atmosphere um, and their conduct of performance and everything has to be to such a level that they don't annoy the principal. Uh, because the moment you annoy them, you'll be kicked off that team. And if you're working in a royalty and specialist protection and you get kicked off a team because of something you said, something you did or something you didn't do, um, then that is your reputation, that job function tarnished as a result. It probably doesn't actually happen that often. Let's face it. The men and women are trained to such a high standard. and One would like to think that the actual selection process is actually 100% fit for purpose. The training is 100% fit for purpose. And those deployed... Uh, and the operational performance conduct on the ground is 100% fit for purpose. And the only reason why a principal will return around and say, I'm not happy with this, because he's had a bad day and he's picking on you at that moment in time, not because you haven't done something or because you've done something that's annoyed him. Um, and, that, and that sort of would be understood and accepted as part of the nature of the job. So many principals out there, regardless of the socioeconomic, political, uh, royal nature, everyone, they are, they're human everyone has a bad day. And if they want to actually uh, stamp their foot and uh, take it out on the person nearest to them, which so happens to be security, then you are to take it on the chin without answering back with a yes sir, yes ma'am, and and be on your way. And it's a case of, (laughs) it's the nature of the job, just accept it and and crack on with the the role. Um, So it's an interesting discussion, certainly. Um, Commercially, of course, the, the main difference is the fact that your um, financial security is dependent on that job. And if that uh, longevity of that job is is um, down to uh, whether the boss likes you or not, or whether you said something or not, whether you did something or not, um, then it is a very fine line between whether you carry on doing that job and whether you've lost it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think it's it's funny you mentioned, you know, Blending in, right? And, and the Hollywood persona is definitely the the 6'5 the muscular build. Looks like it came off of a football game just recently. And uh, I mean, I've never had that issue of blending in um, standing at 5'4. But then again, it's never been an issue for me providing protection, whether it's company based or client based uh, issues. And uh, again, it's much more of a chess game and a mental game of how am I going to get this client? A to B to C all the way to Z and back to A at the end of the day, and how are we going to do that both efficiently and with the lowest threat profile that we can provide to this client? How can we make their day as smooth as possible? And um, I always enjoy that when you go through um, a training iteration and it's not you know somebody popping out of the woodwork and an attack on principle. it's today we're going to provide the smoothest operation possible, and that's what we're going to work on today. And of course, having those hard skills are important, but really at the end of the day, you should already have those developed before you're going in. And And I think that emotional EQ, um, that ability to to talk to people is really at the end of the day, the most important thing. Your ability to change on the fly. So yeah. like you said, take things on the chin and move on to the next moment. Yeah. Um, that's what's really going to make you successful in this business. Mm-hmm. And with that, developing the composition of a team, you know, and, and You coming from an individualistic side of the military police, having to jump in, and it's similar on the private sector side of hopping contract to contract, right? And you're jumping in, and how important is it to get that that team composition and things really gelled and over time to provide that best service as possible? You speak to that the team aspect of this, which is my favorite part of providing close protection, is it's never about you as the individual. It's about we win as a team or we lose as a team. And oftentimes Whole teams will be uh, let go from a contract because of one individual. So you are at your weakest point with your weakest individual. How do you build that composition of a team?
1: Within the commercial sector in the United Kingdom, um, there's two main differences in approach. The first aspect is such that it is a permanent team. And the team leader, security manager, and so on, um, they they have the time and they have the cost um, to actually... Uh, select the right calibre that they want to come on board on the team. And part of that process will be a probation period. Um, And then then they'll be determined whether they gel on the team or not. The second aspect is what the majority of commercial jobs are. And that is short, no notice duration. Commercial contracting companies do not employ operatives um, permanently for the sole basis of Having them there ready to deploy. What occurs is you will have a uh, a, a contracting company that receives a request from a client, and they'll fulfil that request on the back of a messaging WhatsApp group, or a social media post. Got a job in, guys? Forward your CVs in. So they get the CVs. They have a quick filter through. Job starts in a couple of days. Quick phone call, and they're on the team. And of course, you could have five or six guys on this team. And some of them might know each other. Some of them more and often than not, they're, they're expecting to gel as a team. And right from the off, you could have quite a bit of friction there. Um, the, the, there's uh, um, uh, arguments uh, instilled because of a difference of opinion on how things should be done. And so the team, the team leader as a whole has got a, got his work cut out to ensure that the the end user is going to receive a smooth running job, as you as you mentioned. Let's face it, the private sector is, um, is bottom of the pile when it comes to close protection. And it's bottom of the pile at not really any fault of its own, but it's bottom of the pile because of politics. And if you have a United Kingdom aspect, a regulator, for instance, who have determined a set of standards, training standards, which is enforced by a piece of plastic, a license to work. Contracting companies, when they're actually looking at their, their process of delivery and quotations as well, they, they know that um, in a swamped industry, with so many operatives going through the factory of training, coming into work, they're all they're looking for is um, uh, a job. They don't really care about the, the pay they're getting. And uh, they just want that important, first uh, their foot on the first rung of the ladder to start their, their career. And the contracting um, providers, they know this, you see when it comes to quotations, these guys are just know someone will go for this wage. So they'll undercut with a very low quote. Um, and of course, the wages will be low to ensure that they get a profit margin from it. Um, so what you have on standard on the ground is newly, newly trained guys and, and girls um, who don't really know their backside from their elbow on, on the ground. And the end client doesn't know anything because, well, as far as he's concerned, everyone's got a, a UK government license. Now, if you were to have a, a U.S. Um, style of this, I mean, as you, as you said right from the beginning, some states um, do have certain standards some, uh, for, for the role. A concealed carry weapons permit, for example, or a security guard license. Some states don't even recognize the occupation. And it's, you've got this huge difference uh, from state to state. There is no federal approach to it. And if there was a federal approach to it where you have a one standard, that was fit for purpose. One size fits all. There was a proper industry entrance benchmark. Everyone had proper standards in terms of uh, concealed carry um, and, uh, and close protection drills and everything else where it would be acceptable to go from state to state without any hassles whatsoever. Because on a, in a private sector operation, if, if the principal is traveling from state to state, you've got to ensure that you abide legally as well as delivering a service that's fit for purpose. And uh, the hassle factor of, um, not just the hassle factor, but the, the, uh, the interruption to the delivery of best practice on the ground is, yes, you've got a great team in, in, in Utah, for example, you've got another, you, you need another team in New York. And it's, uh, it's what's, what, is going, what is going on? We're, we're here with a, my book covers this in great detail. Um, and it's the whole the whole second part of it uh, works uh, concerns are concerns and detailed with everything that works against operational performance. And when I actually started writing the whole list, I could not believe it was page after page after page of everything. And it, it's a wonder that we as protection protector specialists can actually provide protection to someone in a commercial environment. Because especially in the UK, where we don't even have access to weapons, we can't even carry a baton. We, we, can't, we, have to, we, we, we can't carry anything. And if, if you have like a door supervisor, a security, security guard on, a, on a, a door of a nightclub, OK, there's, there's a queue of people coming in. He's, he's counting them. He's, he's checking the bags and so on. You have someone turn up in that queue with a knife. What is he going to do? Because he's got to think about the queue. He's got to think about himself. He's got to think about the people inside the venue. It's a, it's a batten down the hatches, call the police stance, as opposed to getting out your firearm, getting out your batten. And I can definitely see, as a UK person, I understand both sides of the argument with with, with firearms, and it's a whole other conversation. But it's uh, it's an element in the United Kingdom, and also internationally, where your hands are tied because you can't respond to a certain element of risk and threat. And you're on the back foot as soon as you deploy, because you don't have the tools to do the job.
0: You know, that's very interesting you bring that up. Um, And and of course, from a US-based protection uh, perspective, yes, the the arm protection is very much the norm, right? And uh, that's not the case when a lot of teams go overseas. And you're either subcontracting out with a, a local security team, which hopefully you have Um, either previous work done with them or they have really good reputation um, that you've searched that out and hopefully you've had the time to do that on the front end. Um, But really, you're somebody who's operated in, oh goodness, what, 60 countries, six continents out of seven. I mean, you've pretty much been everywhere that protection has been done. Um, And what is the struggle for that? And what is your perspective of hopping, not just for us, like state to state, where you're subcontracting guys from different cities and different states? um, How difficult is that to coordinate on an international level where you've got to go to either Southeast Asia, you got to go to Australia. And again, very stringent policies on who can have what and what they can have.
1: It wasn't very difficult at all, actually, because the nature of the operation I had um, was such that... Um, for the most part, these were private business meetings. They weren't um, public events. So the, th- the threat didn't know that the presence of the principal was going to be there on that specific date at that time. So we're, that is that was our, our main string in our bow. The, the threat didn't know. And in some instances, we didn't even know. So if we didn't know, then the threat definitely doesn't know.
0: <laughs> That's the best way to operate.
1: <laughs> so it's going to hostile countries. So I've been to every country in South America Example, and uh, every single time I've gone on the blower to the British Embassy in that country, um, and said, "Look, what security company do you use?" And if it's if they if it's good enough for them vetting, I'll then have a chat with the security company, um, and I'll, I'll ask them to provide armored vehicles and armed attachments to our team. I'll also ask for spare weapons to be placed in the cars. Now, sometimes that got raised eyebrows. I didn't give the reason, but it's probably plainly obvious. Um, and without appearing to be so harsh, is that uh, if we're in the country and it hit the fan, those attachments would be our cannon fodder and we'd be gone. Um, they can deal with the armed threat. We'll grab spare weapons if they're around. But if, I mean, at the end of the day, you're fighting for your life. So everything legally goes straight out the window. Um, Because if you abide by law in those times, you haven't got a life worth being in prison anyway. (laughs) So it's it's a case of batting down the hatches as much as you can in terms of the operation, but also abiding by law. And it's so important to do everything legally. Um, I can't stress that enough. Um, So, yes, I mean, traveling to all these high-risk countries, would I prefer to have been armed? Yes, absolutely, I would have. And in some instances, it would have been possible. But the, the, the hassle factor, the paperwork factor, is bombastic. And not only is it bombastic, the actual authorities that you need to notify of your arrival into country, the nature and identity of the principal concerned, you are notifying people that could actually be part of the threat. Yes. Um, many police, law enforcement agencies, government officials in certain countries cannot be trusted. So it simply isn't worth rolling the dice. And if the the travel schedule is conducted in such a manner where um, the threat won't know until the last minute, um, then that is the acceptance of that risk at the time. Yes, you do have a generic risk. Okay, so we're not talking about specifically targeted. We're talking about uh, an element of risk where any Western European in that country is going to be a target for assassination, kidnapping, street mugging and so on. Um, and of course, it is vital that uh, you actually are effective or have the capability to be effective um, to deal with any of that situation. But in reality, I mean, the, the number of times where I've stayed in these fantastic five star palaces and the moment you leave the, uh, the, the perimeter wall, you are entering slum town and you've, you, you're entering a whole um, environment where you've got two, uh, two extremes put together. And you've got severe poor countries um, with street beggars and, and muggers and uh, uh, people that distract you while they're nicking things and all the rest of it at the low end of the crime rule. And it's, you've got to watch your back in these things. And it's, uh, you've got to ensure that the, people, the local assets that you employ are going to be fit for purpose. And quite often when we're talking about firearms in these countries, The level of proficiency isn't the same as the Western world. No, it's not. And yet, you're you are relying on them to provide that fire and power. And if you're employing some of these guys, if it hit the fan, in a way, you could be just as liable to be hit by them as you are by by anyone attacking you. So you're off to a poor start to begin with, really. Um, But fortunately, yes, we 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 managed to travel to these countries uh, without any glitch whatsoever.
0: And like you said, I mean, the, the, the level of coordination, pre-planning in the event that you have it is, is really, really beneficial in that aspect. Um, and, and there's nothing more embarrassing. Um, it hasn't happened to me personally, but you hear the stories of when you try to go into an area and you find out, well, firearms aren't allowed here and they're not going to let you in. And uh, I can't imagine having to either leave a principal unattended or lose, a, lose a significant members of my team. To have to go back to the vehicles, ditch the weapons and come back. I mean, that's always that lapse of coverage. There's always an issue with that. And that's always a discussion that we have to have is what do we bring in? What equipment's available? What's appropriate? And what is the real mission that we're dealing with here? Like you said, Mm -hmm. if we don't even know we're going until last minute, Mm -hmm. uh, the threat knowing and being able to materialize and develop is also going to be difficult. So understanding what your mission set is. Yeah, um, Yeah. Absolutely. Before we, uh, before we jet off uh, today, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about your book, why you decided to update. I know you said it had been a significant kind of time frame between uh, writing your last in your first one. Um, what was the reason for the update? What had changed that sparked this for you that you said, I need to do this now and get this out to uh, the protectors around
1: the world? Um, when I started writing this revised version, it was about three years ago now. Um, So in total, the book is actually probably seven years' worth of writing. Um, When I started writing it, I entitled entitled the book The Ascertainment of Foul Play, um, which is um, the reasoning is to cover everything that works in conflict to operational performance. But when I started writing it, I found myself repeating what I mentioned in the first book. And the reasons for that was because it's impossible to write about things that work in conflict to operational performance or without actually mentioning what operational performance should be. They're entwined. They go together. And the more I wrote, the more I thought, do you know what, let's just do a revised version. So um, the downside of this, of course, is the first book weighed 1.75 kilograms. This book is probably going to weigh two and a half kilograms, and it's, uh, it's going to be rather huge. So the first part, um, part one, is the ascertainment of operational performance, which explains in detail what is required on the ground, um, from individual training um, to the actual conduct of performance on the ground, as a best practice approach and methodology. The second part of the book is ascertainment of foul play, which then delivers everything in the private sector that works against that maximising of operational performance. So as you mentioned right at the beginning, it's for laws, um, budgets, uh, government's prying eyes, uh, and so on. And Three or four chapters at the end of the book um, will hit a crescendo where I detect and thwart a government surveillance team on us. Um, A month later, I then get arrested um, for a crime I didn't commit for the sole purpose of them wanting to have a look at me and search me in the car. I then, when I land into JFK, I get pulled to one side by the FBI and Homeland Security and questioned about what I'm doing in country. When I'm coming in to Terminal 5 London Heathrow from Dubai, I get pulled to one side by Border Force and get asked about what I was doing in Dubai and so on. Um, In addition to that, we had bank accounts, company bank accounts closing, personal bank accounts closing, uh, the full uh, background, nasty undertone of government intrusion. Um, it's your conduct in life just because of the person you're looking after. So I go into that in detail as being the ultimate, let's face it, (laughs) not a lot gets much worse than than something like that um, in the the commercial sector, just because of the person you're looking after. Um, So, yes, uh, I'm very excited to be getting it out there. Um, Some things in the industry have to be said. Um, Mentioning standards is not a popularity contest. Um, that's something I've learned along the way, certainly, because um, to mention about these standards is to understandably knock those people who have conducted the training. So it's a sensitive route, it's a sensitive path in when you're actually picking holes in training that someone else is, has done and has only done. When you're actually then harping on about a government level service that they're never actually going to do. They then get hit again, and so there's it creates an awful lot of friction with the industry, um, and I totally get that. Um, I'm sorry, not sorry. Um, how can you be apologetic for focusing on standards? This is not a personal thing. This is an industry and a specialist op- um, uh, occupation, and it should be given the focused deference it rightly reserves. This is it's a uh, It's a serious profession. And the more people that talk about it, that come together as a collective. And towards the end of the book, I do mention in in one of the final paragraphs, actually, um, about the American um, standards, the the ANSI standard that's actually going through. What a marvellous thing that is. So here you have in America, you have a situation where the industry is not governed federally. Everything is different from state to state. And the standards uh, are most likely worse than the UK. And you have a group, a group of collective, a collective of professionals here that have come together and thought, you know what, we'll deliver our own standard. If the government's not going to do it, we're going to do it. And I thought, what a marvellous thing. What a fantastic thing. And the, 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 the fantastic thing about it on their part is the fact that the federal government hasn't introduced any standard. So they don't have to deal with any poor standard the government is introduced, like the United Kingdom. There they go. That's your project. Crack on and do it. Wow. Brilliant.
0: I will say it's a very uh, American way of thinking, right, is we're going to do this without government interference. So <laughs> um, it's, it's been a fascinating to watch this kind of develop and, and watch protection become more professionalized, certainly in the United States. And I'm sure um, you're, you're forefront and center in trying to make that progression over in the UK as well. And it'll be interesting to see where we are in another year, three years, five years, and a decade from now to see what kind of professionalism, what kind of standard has been developed absolutely. and held to. And uh, and definitely, I mean, it, I see it as an only a positive, right? Yeah. Um, we should be elevating people to a standard um, instead of dropping that standard to fit everybody already into a pool. So absolutely, uh, it benefits the clients, but it also benefits the protectors. Yes. Uh, you're going out there every day. To, to risk not coming home, uh, you better be able to do this job to the best of your ability and to a set standard that you know your peers are able to perform as well. Definitely. So with that, um, Richard, we're going to call it a day, um, but definitely would love to have you back sometime in the future after that book is launched, uh, after we have some time to see how things develop and to see where we are from today. It'll be very interesting yes. indeed. Um, and lastly, before I let you go, where can our listeners find you? Because you provide great content beyond your book on almost a daily basis.
1: Um, I don't do Facebook. Um, I'm just on LinkedIn, really. Um, so yeah, look me up on LinkedIn. I'll be fine. I'll be delighted to discuss.
0: Wonderful. We'll make sure to to make that link available for our listeners so they can start following you Thank and, and getting me. the content that Thank you provide, which is great. Um, dense and it is plentiful, and it is necessary for those who are operating into this environment. Nice. So, thank you again, sir, for joining us today and providing your insight and expertise on close protection Likewise, well. and uh, the professionalization yeah. of this industry moving forward.
1: Great to speak with you. Great to meet with you. Yes,
0: we'll have you back in the future. And to our listeners, till next time, stay safe.